this is episode number four of the Veeries and Numerous podcast. Uh, tonight, I'm very honored. I'm a professor of economics at Duquesne University and distinguished Milton Friedman, uh, uh, distinguished Milton Friedman fellow uh, on the program. His, uh, his name is uh, Professor Anthony Davies. I appreciate your time, uh, taking your time out of your uh, night and your busy schedule to come on tonight, sir. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I, I'm, I like to get into people's background uh, right off the bat. Uh, everybody has an interesting story, and uh, it's good to find out, you know, how people uh, started their life. So where did you grow up? I grew up in um, north central Pennsylvania, uh, middle of nowhere. Actually, uh, Montoursville, which is the home of the Little League World Series. Okay. Is that, is and, that uh, what I, report, or is that I didn't know it was a thing until after I left um, – Montoursville and saw it on the news. Okay. Yeah, I, I remember watching that growing up. It got pretty big on ESPN and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what, uh, what kind of student were you growing up? Were you, uh, were you a good student? It seems like you probably were. Yeah, I, you know, I spent all my time either doing, you know, studying, being a student, and the rest of my time, my whole family was involved in theater. So, you know, it was one or the other, and that was it. That's my 24-hour day. Oh, okay. And it was kind of nice. It, it, was, it was there I discovered the secret to being productive is don't have too much free time. Oh, yeah, that's, that's the number one thing. No idle time, stay moving. Right. Body right. in motion stays in motion, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, when did you get interested in economics and start uh, looking into economic theory? <laughs> I laugh because... I was always interested in mathematics. It was like a hobby of mine. I just loved it, right? And, uh, and um, I talked about being an, an uh, astrophysicist. And this was at the point in history when astrophysicists were just not employable. And my mother was petrified that I'd go into that. And she said, why don't you study economics? And I said, well, what's economics? And she said, just go try it. You'll like it. <laughs> That's awesome. So I, I did, and it ended up being, um, you know, it, it was an outlet for my mathematics um, and also quite fascinating unto itself. Yeah, uh, mothers have a way of kind of knowing where, maybe where their child should go. My mom kind of led me into English, and, but I mean, learning to write, you know, and then I got interested in economics sort of from that, you know, reading my favorite yeah. authors and stuff. So uh, I was curious about your background. So when did you, uh, you want to tell everyone where you went to uh, university? I know you went to... Uh, uh, Albany for your, uh, for yeah, your I did. I did my undergraduate at St. Vincent college in, uh, Latrobe, Pennsylvania and my PhD at the state university of New York at Albany. I actually met somebody the other night in uh, Pittsburgh that knew you, uh, from St. Vincent. Oh, really? Maybe your children, uh, went there as well. I'm not sure. Yeah. The, I'll talk to you about that after we're done, but yeah, I met yeah. somebody that knew you. Um, and what, what sort of books did you start reading off the bat? Um, when you got into economics, do you remember um, I never read economics for fun. Um, I was, I, I've kind of developed my public persona doing kind of the Austrian thing, right? The Mises and Hayek and all of that. I hadn't studied any of those. I came up in a traditional econ program. Um, you know, you, you call it the Chicago school. So I didn't, I, I was past my PhD before I ever figured out who Mises and Hayek were. So so there, it's not the sort of thing, the traditional Chicago school economics is not the sort of thing you read for fun. 
<laughs> right? For fun, I was I was science fiction. Oh, okay. Yeah, a lot of, you know, I'm into blockchain a lot. I want to ask you about that in a little bit. And a lot of those guys are, uh, they yeah. were the libertarian cypherpunks were uh, sci-fi guys as well. So it's yeah, interesting. Yeah. yeah, we're getting into your software stuff in a little bit. So it's, that's interesting too. Uh, your Wikipedia describes you both as a neoclassical. I know I'm talking to a professor and this isn't always where you want to get your information. But uh, it, it, it uh, describes you as a neoclassical and Austrian economist. So can you tell everyone that doesn't know what the difference, the difference is between the two schools? Well, the, the neoclassical, um, I, I, yeah, well, I, I don't know. I don't know what, what people mean by neoclassical. It's, I say Chicago school, right? Okay. Which means, think of, of Milton Friedman. Right. So someone who's basically a, a free market orientation but with all of the, the mathematical modeling in the background that Austrians don't mess with. Right. Austri Austrians approach from a philosophical perspective principally. And, um, and when I got, when I encountered my first Austrians, which was probably 10 years after I finished my PhD, I was having, you know, deep conversations with them and I'm seeing them come to the same conclusions I had come to. But whereas I used mathematics, they used philosophy and reason. I thought, wow, this is, there must be something fundamentally true about the conclusion that you can reach it from these two disparate perspectives. Yeah, that's so, pretty cool. So from that point forward, I kind of, I call myself an adopted Austrian now. So <laughs> I, have, I have a foot in both camps. I love the Austrian school. I, I'm one of those people that do read it for, for leisure and like, I like to listen to a good, uh, uh, you know, uh, Austrian lecture on YouTube or something. So that's another reason yeah. I can talk to you tonight. Uh, what what do you teach it? What do you teach right now at uh, Duquesne? I usually I always you know everybody teaches some principles classes. I do that. Um, I teach the uh, the advanced econometrics, which is they our students take four semesters of statistics. Um, statistics one, two, econometrics, advanced econometrics, um, and uh, some MBA stuff. You know, and generally that's it. I do a lot of people in in our department don't like to do online classes. I love to do online classes. And so consequently, I get most of them. So for example, this semester, I only have one class that's physically in front of me. The okay. rest of them are all online. That's pretty cool. And what is this? So I'm sure this, this kind of changes my next question. The follow-up is, uh, uh, what's the most challenging thing to teach, uh, you know, get kids interested in economics today? Uh, is it easier or harder, do you think, uh, doing it in a virtual? What's the difference between the virtual and physical setting? Oh, I hate the virtual. Um, I, I think it, it's an excellent, it's an excellent um, learning environment for people who are, are highly self-motivated, right? So if you're the kind of person, you would study this on your own anyway, an online course is perfect for you. If you're the kind of person that you, that, that you need the professor pushing a little bit, this right. is a horrible mistake. I don't, I don't like it. Now, I have it. It's, it's designed, the, the information is the same kind of thing that I teach on, in the person-to-person, -person, but I miss the personal interaction, right? So, you know, I have two MBA classes that are both kind of surveys of economic stuff. The in-class one is wonderful discussion back and forth and debates, this kind of thing. The online, same material is like crickets. You don't hear anything. Right, and you can learn things from uh, other people's opinions, as you obviously know. You know oh, tremendous amount. Yeah, yeah. Having that dialogue is good. What, have you
have you do you think uh today millennials are interested in uh economic theory like you have a like uh or do you have to kind of get them interested you see a lot of people that uh start to get more interested when you get a hold of them in class or online i it varies you know they they seem to be interested in things that are going on around them so if when, when i approach economics from the perspective of here's what candidates are saying and this is why what they're saying is right or what they're saying is wrong or mm -hmm. the implications that they like but to say you know the relationship between demand and supply looks like this you get an equilibrium they're not interested in in that right. I, I'm, ge I'm generalizing yeah they don't want to do the models and all the math and whatnot right no and you know and, and i can see it because they want they want to hook it on to something that, that hits them viscerally that they're interested in and, and I think it's perfectly fine. The problem is the textbooks aren't written that way. The textbooks are written to present all of the theory, and maybe at the end of the chapter you'll see a couple of, of applications. Right. That's, right. that's got to change. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I never thought of it like that. Um, you, you mentioned Milton Friedman, and I know well, we've talked about him. Um, have you read his son a lot? Have you read any of his son's books? Or uh, He seems to be... Uh, a, a little bit different than his father and his philosophy, very close, but a little different. Yeah, no, I haven't. I've met David a couple of times and um, he's a fascinating guy. He's into, I forget the name of it, but what is the thing where you simulate like a medieval village? Oh yeah, like, I know what you're talking about. Almost yeah. like, like Renaissance, but the more right. serious thing. Yeah. And he does, um, he, he, I guess his role in, in these events is telling stories, telling history. Oh, okay. And so we sat for a long time, and I want to say we talked. We didn't talk. He talked. I listened um, uh, about <laughs> you know, the his, of history talk. of law and economics. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> yeah, he's an interesting guy. I'm not a, I'm not a, as big of a Friedmanite or whatever Friedman guy. I like Milton Friedman, uh, but uh, I've, I've listened to some of what David Friedman had to say, too, and I, I think he's interesting. Uh, yeah. So have you ever seen the clip of uh, Milton Friedman um, predicting Bitcoin? No, there's, there's a no. Clip, there's actually a clip on YouTube. I don't. I think it's from the '90s or '80s, and he actually uh, talks about a digital accounting ledger. You know, almost predicted it. Pretty. You know, it's pretty amazing what he predicted. So I thought I'd seen all of the Friedman videos. This is great. I gotta go find this one. Yeah, now. I'll send it to you when we get off of here. I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure that was Friedman. Um, so, are there any other Austrian-leaning professors at uh, Duquesne? Um, there, there are a couple who were, who were educated kind of like I was in the more traditional Chicago school, but have also adopted, you know, some of the Austrian stuff, uh, um, largely, I, I'm going to paint with a broad brush here, but largely economists, pretty much anywhere you go are some variation of free market. And many of them might not say that, but if you start poking at them, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Generally speaking, they look and act and act and quack like free market economists, right? Um, it's just the way when you study the thing, that's the direction it tends to point. I understand that. Uh, this question is is a little different. Uh, I know you're you're Catholic, right? Yes. Okay. So, um, what do you think that had a um, an impact on uh, your decision to get into economics and like? understanding the natural law and stuff like that, you know, the individual is greater than the state sort of thing. Uh, did that, did, did you have any uh, thoughts on that sort of idea? Yeah, no, the, the answer there is no. In fact, if anything, it was the other direction. 
because I, like, like many young people who are first encountering economics, perceived that economics was about making profits. It was about business, right? And that's in, in that, you know, at a gut level, you think, well, that's kind of antithetical to the idea of living in community and sharing, blah, blah, blah. And it wasn't until much later, actually, after I start messing with the Austrians, that I realized, no, that's not what economics is about. Economics is about human behavior, how humans come together to solve problems given within the, given their various limitations. And, and whether one is, is selfish or altruistic has nothing to do with the economic system. It has to do with the person, right? right? The economic system is simply the environment in which your selfishness or altruism plays out. So this is the idea that we're all greedy. It's just, it's, a, it's subjective. What is greed? It's, all, it's, a, it's on a different level, right? Yeah, yeah. We're all self-interested. Now, you know, I'm, my self-interest may solely be a function of me, and people would call that greed, or my self-interest may also largely be a function of other people. And yeah, you call hear, that altruism. Yeah, you hear greed a lot today, so I, that, that's good. I'm glad you, you explained that perfectly. The State of the Union is tonight, I believe, and, oh uh, my God! I forgot all about it. Yeah, right. I, I, I don't. I don't follow along in the politics, but the only I look at it from an economics point. I honestly, I don't watch any of the stuff anymore. I'm completely uh, out of that scene. Um, I'm, I'm an Austrian anarcho-capitalist guy, but uh, I, I'd be remiss if I had you on and I didn't ask you about the debt. That's that's one of the most important things we could talk about. And I saw, actually, came across a. I was I was at a family gathering. I was at my uh, parents' house last month, and I was waiting for uh, dinner. And uh, I came. I was. I watched one of your speeches, at your, a lecture you'd recently given. I think it was within the last twelve months, and you were talking about how the, the nominal, you know, the nominal debt's like twenty three trillion, twenty three trillion right now. Right. It, right. Actually, closer to one hundred and fifty, over one hundred fifty trillion dollars, if you include all the things they don't include to make it look right. small. What is? Uh, what do you think this? What is the end game here? Is it a race to the bottom? of the monetary ranks or, you know, what, what is the end game? Yeah. So that's a good question. Um, I think it plays out as follows. I don't know which of these are going to come first. In fact, they'll probably come kind of together. Uh, one is, is application of means testing on social security, which means that at some point, uh, politicians are going to say, okay, this, this idea of everybody getting social security is now off the table. You're going to get or not get social security based on how much you've saved in your 401ks, your IRAs, how much your income is, something like that. So they're going to start to pull, pull back social security. And one of the things to watch for, I guarantee you some politician is going to say this at some point within the next 10 years. They're going to say something like, Social security was never designed for everybody. It was designed for the poor. And those of you who are fortunate enough to have employers who contribute to 401k plans, well, it's time for you to give back. And why should you give back? Well, the reason you got those jobs that contribute into your 401k is because you got college educations. Right. And you've got those educations because the federal government subsidized your loans. And now you're going to give back. You're going to give back in the form of reduced Social Security benefits. I guarantee you that. Now, that, that sounds like, oh, you know, we're looking to do what's right. What they're really doing is defaulting on Social Security obligations, right? It's a default. I mean, now, so that's what, 
That's really interesting. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. That's one of the things that's going to happen. The other thing that's going to happen kind of simultaneous with it is, um, is monetization. And you start to see this already with this rise of MMT, modern monetary theory. When you boil down modern monetary theory to its bare bones, what it really is, is printing money. We're going to print money to pay our bills. And, you know, even non-economists understand at a gut level what happens here. You get inflation. So when, we're, when we print money to pay our bills, what we're really doing is stealing purchasing power of other people's dollars. Right. And exporting the debt to the uh, people that have those IOUs, right? That's right. So um, where I, I actually took an audience question as well. Uh, I, I put it on my Facebook, my social media today. And uh, this uh, guy named Raphael, Raffel uh, asked, how low do you think the interest rates can go? And uh, is there any real objective limitation for negative interest rates in our current economic system? Yeah, well, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know the answer to how low can they go. But in Europe, they already have negative interest rates. Right. Um, are we going to see negative interest rates here? I, I don't know. I can't get my head around them well enough. There's got to be some – I can't see negative interest rates going – hard negative like they can go hard positive. I can see them going a little bit negative. But beyond that, weird things happen because you get into a space where you're better off just keeping your money in cash. Why would you, you know, why, why would you borrow a certain amount of money and pay back less of it, right? That, right. It, it starts not to make sense. So I, I don't know the answer to that. Do you think that you, you kind of talked about the average person that doesn't have an economic, like the layman, in economics, they don't have uh, solid, you know, they might not have studied a lot of economics. Um, them not, them sort of understanding that the printing isn't really good, uh, obviously. Um, do you think this is the reason you see a lot of people today with uh, very little saved? Do you think they realize that they might as well spend that money immediately? Um, or do you think that just happens to be the society we live in today? Well, the savings rate isn't as low as what politicians make it out to be okay but 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 it is lower than it would be otherwise and what do i mean by that well the federal reserve has been holding interest rates artificially low for going on 20 15 20 years now um so if you hold interest rates low you're taking away the incentive to save so you know, that's not say people aren't saving but they're saving less than they would otherwise uh, that was I, I know the dollars lost you, a lot of people say upwards of 90, 90 something percent over the last century so that's something I was interested in if, if you know you're a younger person and you plan on saving money it doesn't make sense to actually put it in something like uh, uh, land per, maybe not a house that depreciates but do you think that would be good to put it in land or something a hard asset like that yeah I don't know um, you're you're asking investment advice question which I'm not competent to answer. Okay. Um, I, I can tell you by the numbers that the stock market seems to be doing well. Yeah, it has its ups and downs, but on average, it's at the same time the interest rates have been remarkably low. The stock market return has been pretty, pretty good. Right. Uh, you know, what's going to happen in the future? I don't know. There's lots of people who say things like you should invest in land and gold. And as far as that's concerned, you and I are on equal footing there as far as, as what, what the advice should be, you know, okay. I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, was, I had to ask that question. Uh, as far as the United States picture, I mean, like you mentioned all the, the a lot of European uh, nations 
uh, their central banks have negative rates. Um, do you see uh, or envision a world or, you know, in the future, um, I don't know how long it would take, but the United States loses its reserve dollar status? Yeah, that's certainly possible. Um, you know, once upon a time, the pound sterling was the world currency. And at the time, at the height of the British Empire, if you had asked, will there ever be a time when the pound sterling isn't the world reserve, people would laugh at you, right? <laughs> but now we have the dollar. Right. You know, what, what's coming next? I don't know. Um, one possibility, and it's just a possibility, China is... China has a, a massive economy. Now, it, it's roughly speaking around the, the size of the U.S., give or take. But it's around the size of the U.S., given that they have three times the number of people. So it, it's as if it's this massive economic juggernaut that, that's missing half of its spark plugs. And the missing spark plugs is, are, is the lack of, of market freedoms there. China has been instituting over decades now, more and more market freedoms. As it does that, it's putting spark plugs back into the engine. And once they all get in, China is going to be the economic engine of the planet. And so at that point, I would not at all be surprised that the Chinese currency becomes the world reserve. Right. Now, what we're talking about here, what we're talking about here is probably, if it comes to pass, it's probably 50 years down the road plus. Okay. Uh, shifting lanes a little bit here, uh, more into your, uh, the history of, uh, uh, what, of what you've done. You uh, co-founded Paragon Software, and that was a uh, video game developer. Uh, it was a video game uh, company, and you guys worked with some pretty big people. You, had license, you, were, uh, you uh, developed games that were licensed by Marvel Comics, which was pretty, pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, I have to put a big footnote there. So the story is my friend um, Mark Ceremet and I, when we were sophomores in college, encountered the problem many sophomores in college do, that we wanted to buy beer and we had no money. But we were both coders. So we decided, let's start coding for businesses and we'll get money and we can buy beer. So we started, we were actually doing business software. And um, the product life cycle is so long on the business software that we're running out of, uh, out of money. So we said, okay, let's do some games on the side because the product cycle was much smaller for games, do some games just to make some money. So I continued with the business software. My friend Mark uh, started up with the games and the games ended up, we abandoned the business software. The games were the things that, that paid. But by the time those things came online, by the time they were doing the Mar Marvel comics, uh, I had left the company to go to graduate school. Mark uh -huh. stayed with it. Mark so stayed with it. It sold it, repurchased it. And um, wow. anyway, he and I are still now very good friends. He's still doing some online something. That's pretty cool that you, you know, you started something that was successful like that while you're still sophomore. That was fun. Yeah. It was fun. I mean, that's really neat. What, are there any parallels between what you did with them and uh, economics, like what, you know, what you do today? Not really. Um, not really. It's, it's very, you're, the two things, business and, and, and economics, are at, at opposite ends of a spectrum. With the business, you're, you're down in the weeds dealing with, day-to-day -day stuff and buying and selling and contracts and this. In economics, you're at, at 10,000 feet taking a high view of, of the whole economy. So it's two very different vantage points. Uh, what did you, what would, would be one thing that you learned while you were in, while you were doing that, that uh, you, you know, uh, in the software business that you took, took with you though? 
Um, I, I would say probably the thing that stands out there, and then I, I w went to academia and then left to go back into industry and went back into academia. So both of my forays into industry, the same thing jumps out at me, which is that um, people in business are not, they're not heartless people, like we're, you know, politicians will present them. They're, they're regular, nice people just like you, just like me, right? They're, what they're trying to do, yes, they're trying to make a buck, but the way they're trying to make it is by looking around and asking how they can serve other people. And, and, and they're moving very quickly doing it, right? So they'll spend, you know, I'll spend a week studying this thing. If this isn't good enough, people don't want it. I'm going to bend it. I'm going to do something else because every tick of the clock is another dollar that I'm spending. So these people are hyper-focused on thinking about others, making other people's lives better, which is vastly different than what you get in academia, right? In academia, we're all in our heads. We're thinking about us, and we move at a snail's pace, right? It's a, the polar opposite. And I did get a lot of rhetoric at, in my academic, uh, you know, along the way from professors that, you know, the capitalist is, uh, you know, that greedy, gimme, gimme, gimme guy. And like you, like you just described, it, it's the complete opposite. They're really the best yeah. benefactors no, in society. I guarantee you, any professor who says that is a professor who has never actually worked in the private sector. Exactly. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Uh, so uh, this is the Varies and Numbers podcast. Uh, uh, you know, this is I, I want to talk to economists and people that are into blockchain and stuff. So I have to ask you these questions. I know you didn't want to give any financial or uh, um, advice on property or anything like that, but. What you and I have had a, a few one conversation at least about uh, cryptocurrencies. Um, do you believe um, that Bitcoin or something like Bitcoin could be a tool to um, free markets across the world? Yeah, I think very much so. My my belief is that cryptocurrency becomes the the world currency. I, I don't necessarily think that national currencies will go away. But in the background, there will there will be cryptocurrency, whether it's Bitcoin, Ethereum, or something that hasn't even been invented yet. I don't know, but it's going to be something like that, and it's going to be the you talk about the the reserve currency that may well end up being the reserve currency. I kind of see that as the end game too. I think Bitcoin just passed uh, in the, around nine thousand ninety three ninety four hundred dollars. It's actually a larger uh, 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 monetary base than what Russia has. So. Um, right, right. Yeah, I think that's, I, you know, it's in the top 10. I think Russia is number nine, so Bitcoin would be number eight or something like that. So I see it eating up more value. It's still, uh, Bitcoin's only $165 uh, billion right now, market cap, but the overall crypto uh, market cap's a lot bigger. I just see it as a, as a real tool. That's one of the reasons I got into it. I wanted to ask you about that. After you left WVU, um, you went, am I right here? You went and worked... Um, for another uh, software uh, company, Paragon Computation. Yes. It, it, yes. It, has anyone ever mentioned to you how close Paragon and Parabon are? <laughs> that's yeah. It's ju that's just a coincidence. Yeah, I was um, wondering if there was anything to that. Yeah, a friend of mine started this company, so he technically he's the founder, but I was there from the beginning. Um, I was their CFO. Parabon is uh, they do supercomputation. In fact, you you may well have run across them in the news. The thing that, that they're known for currently is they can take DNA from a crime scene, run it through their supercomputer, and build a picture of the person's face. 
from the DNA. Yeah, they've solved a number of cold cases doing that. I didn't know that was possible, to be honest with you. That's amazing. Yeah, it's scary when you think about it. (laughs) I mean, it's a good thing if you're doing it for the right reasons, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and this is another, this ties in with blockchain. Uh, that, that was, uh, you guys were working on supercomputers, uh, right? So what do you mm-hmm. think? Have you looked into Ethereum? Uh, you oh, know, yeah. Ethereum claims they're going to be the world's supercomputer. They don't really model, you know, advertise it or whatever as much, you know, brand themselves that way right now. But do you think that that, that decentralized blockchain has a lot of potential to, uh, you know, do things like that? Yeah, so there's an interesting thing here, it, because I, I jumped on the Ethereum, Ethereum bandwagon early because of that. Presumably, it, there's some, you, you can program, I'm going to mess the words up, right? But there's some, you can code the thing somehow. Right. You can, you, can build, you can build contracts that will automate on the Ethereum blockchain. Smart contracts. And, right, right. And, and so in that sense, it's far more versatile than Bitcoin. It has another thing going for itself that I, w- I was surprised when I realized this because prior to realizing it, I would have said the opposite. The thing it has going for itself is that it's not capped like Bitcoin. And the reason I say that has it going for it, so, so for those who aren't aware, there's, there is in theory a maximum amount of Bitcoin. And once we reach that amount, there is no more. And, and people look at that as a plus because your Bitcoin can't be um, inflated away, like we worry about people printing dollars. You can't print more Bitcoin. It is what it is. The downside of that is that people will have a tendency, a less of a tendency to use it in transactions because you know that over time it's necessarily going to become more valuable because there's a cap on, on it. So your tendency will be to hoard it, right? It's like when, when, um, uh, the mint comes out with a new coin. We come out with a dollar coin. And you never see them in circulation because everybody holds on to them because they think they're going to be worth more in the future, right? So right. The things never circulate. So to Bitcoin, Ethereum does grow. It grows at a limit, but, but there is a, there's growth over time. And that growth, I submit, will make, it makes Ethereum much more likely candidate for a regular um, uh, usable currency than Bitcoin. So what we may find is that the world moves to a combination of those two, where Ethereum becomes the crypto we use in transactions and Bitcoin becomes the crypto we use for our savings. I actually think that uh, you just nailed it there. I, I, I agree with you a lot on that, that we're going to have something like Ethereum as a medium of exchange and, yep. uh, and Bitcoin might emerge. It, it really already has as more of a store of value. And, yep, uh, yep. People, I think that's right. People don't want to put it into circulation as much. Yeah. If they do, they're, you know, what, so you've dabbled a little bit in the crypto space. Uh, are there, uh, when did you, when did you start looking at it? I started looking at it. Who got me involved in it was a friend of mine, uh, Steve Horowitz. He was, uh, and I don't know whether he was actually invested, but we were having a conversation about it. And, uh, and I thought, you know, this is stupid. I need to get involved in this. And that was back when it was selling for 200. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have have any uh, inclinations on who Satoshi Nakamoto might be? Have you ever looked? No idea. No idea. But I'm just delighted that nobody knows. (laughs) It's pretty cool, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it's really interesting. So what, what have you, have you had any lectures? Have you given any lectures or has anyone asked you about it at Duquesne? 
about Bitcoin? No, I've talked to some um, some students about it who were actually investing in it. So, you know, we would compare and they would laugh at me because I got out too early. I would laugh at them because they got in, the thing tanked, right? That kind of thing. They bought but, the uh, Yeah, right. But I'm, I'm actually, I don't know enough to to talk about it in, you know, like to give lectures on it or anything. Uh, I could just answer the odd question like we're doing now. Right. What do you have? Uh, what, do you, what what's the future for you look like? What what are you gonna play? You plan on teaching for a long time, or what? Do you, you seem to yeah. like to, to do you, uh, uh, some private sector stuff. What do you, what what's on your table and in the, in the, your agenda in the future? Well, I get this. I get this five year itch. Every five years, I get bored with what I'm doing. I want to do something else, right? So um, so about five years ago, I started with my uh, colleague James Harrigan, a nonprofit. And we go around to high schools giving one day lectures on economics and government. So we've been all over the country doing this. In fact, I'm going in two days to, to uh, Missouri to do a couple of these. And, um, and so we're doing that and that's become quite successful. And uh, we turned it over uh, last uh, spring to the Foundation for Economic Education. And they're now taking over and expanding it. So, so that brings me to my next five-year cycle. And our next five-year cycle, we just finished a book, we, James Harrigan and I, it's coming out next month, Cooperation and Coercion, where we talk about how it's a book about economics and government aimed at the interested non-expert. Okay. So we talk about how humans organize themselves by these two principles, cooperation, i.e. markets, and coercion, i.e. government. I'm going to have to pick up a copy of that and try to have you back on again if you'll come back on. Absolutely. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Um, I, I, I guess where I would just say is that uh, anybody, I'm going to put all your links in the, um, in the uh, description of this video. When the book comes out, I'll update it. So, uh, yeah, everyone go check that out. But um, that's all but, I have for now. Yeah, I really appreciate it. As long that. as we're talking about that, check out as well my podcast. James and I have a weekly podcast, Words and Numbers. Uh, you can find us at wordsandnumbers.org. We come out every Wednesday with a half-hour episode. We talk about... Well, economics and government. Yeah, I actually wanted to mention that about the podcast because James is a, a friend of mine on the internet as well. So, uh, yeah. yeah, I've watched a few episodes of that. It's a great podcast. I'll put those links in the, that link in the description as well. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to uh, mention? Or I don't think so. Yeah, I appreciate I'm happy to. I'm happy to come on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is. Uh, I learned a lot tonight. I really appreciate you coming on. My pleasure. Yeah. Yeah, we'll have to do it again. You uh, Stick around. I want to say goodbye, but I'm going to uh, close this out. And uh, everyone have a good day.